Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Dr. Cubitt. We're going beyond the barn. Come join us on this journey as we bust equine and livestock nutrition myths and interview some of the most intriguing experts in the country. We'll go behind the scenes of how premium Western quality forage is grown and brought to your favorite farm and ranch retail store. We're so glad you're here. Tomorrow is our one-year anniversary of the Beyond the Barn podcast from Stanley Premium Western Forage. We can't thank you enough for being a part of this amazing journey with us and being such loyal listeners. To thank you all, we're giving away 10 free Stanley product coupons, which is a value of over $200 depending on the products you choose. The last day to enter will be Monday, February 28th, 2022. All you have to do to be entered to win is complete our short podcast feedback survey, and you can find the link in our show notes, and we'll also be sharing the link over on our social accounts. And if you listen on the Apple Podcast app, leave us an honest rating and review. That's it. Thank you so much for joining us every other week in this space. We appreciate you more than you know. Now, enjoy this inspiring interview with a very talented writer and horsewoman. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Barn. Today, we have a very special guest joining us at the Beyond the Barn studio. Our guest is an international dressage writer and trainer who represented the USA at the 2012 London Olympics, 2014 World Equestrian Games, the 2018 World Equestrian Games, where they happened to win the team silver medal, the 2019 World Cup Finals in Sweden, and the 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, where she helped win a historic team silver medal for the USA. So today I am so honored to have Adrian Lyle join us in the studio. Adrian, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. So you're originally from Washington. Tell us a little bit more about where you grew up and how horses became a part of your life. Yes, I was uh, born and raised on Whidbey Island, Washington, my family's farm there. Horses were a part of my life just through farm life. We had cows, we had horses, we had bunnies, we had every kind of critter. Definitely not horse show related, right. but I always had a love and a passion for horses. So spent a lot of time around them. All my waking hours were just out in the pens with our horses. And we had a, a big farm and tons of trail riding. So just a lot of hours with them from a young age. I was looking at some pictures of the area and it looks so beautiful where you grew up. It is. I was so blessed to be able to have a childhood like that for sure. Did you get to do a lot of beach riding? We did, yeah. We were uh, our farm like overlooks Puget Sound there in the in the ocean, and it's a bit of a hike with the horses because it's a bluff right in front of us. So it takes about an hour to ride around the way you can take the horses. But we spent a lot of time on the beach with the horses when we were young. That sounds like such a fun experience, just to be able to do that, even especially as kids. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> that's awesome. So then. At what point did you kind of shift from that farm using horses, you know, in everyday kind of farm life riding around to actually doing something with them, showing or competing and things like that? How old were you? Fairly young. 
mostly because I was just fascinated by horses and their ability to learn and accept instruction from us. So I was always training these horses, even though I didn't know what I was training them to do. You know, I'd have King the Ponies to do tricks and I'd train the miniature horses to pull carts. And so I was I was always fascinated by the horse training part of it. I joined the our local chapter of the United States Pony Club when I was about eight years old, I believe. And okay. Through that, kind of had a little bit more guidance than they had, you know, monthly meetings, unmounted, where you learned about horse care, and then once or twice a month, we would have uh, group mounted lessons. So that was my first kind of formal instruction. Through that, I became focused on the three-day eventing, and that was how I was introduced to dressage, but didn't really focus in on that for several years later. Okay. Did you or do you now, I guess, sometimes people can only have like a once in a lifetime horse, but sometimes people are lucky enough to get to experience that more than once. But do you have a heart horse? I mean, Salvino for sure is an absolutely incredible soul. Wizard, who I took to the 2012 Olympics and the 2014 World Games, was also so special to me. We did our first Grand Prix together, his and mine first together. Uh, we became the under 25 Grand Prix champions together. And so we just learned a lot together as we went. And he was a character. He was fiery and generally difficult, but <laughs> lovely. Any horse that you get to this level when you're campaigning and making teams and traveling the world together, you spend more time with them than you do with your family or significant other or friends. I mean, you truly become such a relationship that any horse that you go through that with, you have such an incredible bond with. Your life is just devoted to them in those years that they are campaigning at that level. Absolutely. So Adrian, what was a standout memory for you as a kid with horses? Something that you'll never forget. I don't know if there's like one particular memory, but I would just say in general, our adventures on ponies around the farm was so fun. Like we seldom were home if there was daylight out and often nights we'd sneak out and ride in the middle of the night. We'd routinely build forts up in the forest, you know, and we'd like make makeshift corrals for the ponies and try to pretend we had a stables just because we didn't feel like sleeping at the house. And so we'd bring all the horses up to the woods and sleep with them. And there was just a lot of really fun times like that that I will for sure never forget. That's so awesome. Did you do that a lot with your cousin Maya? Yes, definitely. That's Maya kept her horses at our house when she was younger and then they actually moved onto the same property as us and built a house and a horse farm when we were a little bit older. So my cousin, but we pretty much grew up like sisters and we're both very horse crazy girls. That's so awesome. What a wonderful experience to have. So, and you said, of course, like when you first started out with horses and, you know, knowing them through working cattle and things like that. So obviously you were kind of exposed and did some Western disciplines, but now you're very much into the kind of the English side of things. So can you share some things that maybe you like about Western disciplines and some things that you like about English disciplines since you've had that opportunity to be able to do both? Yeah, um, I really enjoyed some of, I've, I've worked for various different people in a lot of different disciplines. And one thing I always say is you learn something from every discipline. There are tricks from when I worked with the Arabs and did the halter classes, you know, there's grooming tricks I've learned from that. There's just everything kind of can be transferred over. I did some barrel racing a little bit when I was younger. That was really fun just because you got to go fast. But what yeah. really strikes me the most about all of this is just how incredible these animals are. 
that they're so malleable and we can, they're so willing to learn whatever it is we want them to learn. You know, these disciplines that can be so vastly different in appearance as to what the finished product looks like, but it's still yeah. all basic horsemanship. The horses still all think the same, they process learning the same. And so it's really the, the basis of it is very similar, even though the the product might look different. Yeah. I, you know, thinking about it from that perspective, it is pretty incredible the things that we ask horses to do and what they're capable of. And it goes beyond that, right? Like not Absolutely. only just like their athleticism in general, but like I feel like what they can do for the mental aspect of their partners, their riders is just really, really incredible. Absolutely. So at what point in your life did you decide or even think that you might have a chance to work towards making it to the Olympics one day? Was this just a dream that you had as a little girl or what was that moment like for you? Yeah, this is a funny question because people ask me this all the time. My dream when I was a little girl was not necessarily to go to the Olympics. My dream or my goal, I should say, was always to be able to make a living working with horses. I knew I would be happy if I did that. I never wanted to have to have a desk job. I loved working with horses. But where we grew up in kind of rural Washington, there was a big disconnect from what I was doing to the horses versus what I saw these incredible Olympic athletes doing. And I didn't really know if that was feasible to bridge. That being said, I'm extremely competitive and I'm extremely competitive with myself. So even though I was out in the farm, you know, in the middle of nowhere, I, I would work and work and work away trying to get better at my riding and better at the training. And so I would always wanted to compete for sure and wanted to be the best rider and trainer that I possibly could be. Where that disconnect kind of finally got bridged is when I went to become a working student for Debbie McDonald uh, while I was in college at that point. She had been internationally competitive, was our number one rider for many years at that time included. And so what, by working there, I started to kind of see like, okay, this is, this is how it's done. And it's not vastly different. You know, it's good horsemanship and it's good training, you know, going through the proper channels and that this is how she actually became and stayed competitive. So that's what really bridged that gap for me finally. Just kind of having that experience, kind of working under her. That's pretty awesome. So for anyone listening who maybe is not totally familiar with dressage, can you tell us a little bit more about what dressage is and how it's judged at a competition? Yeah, that trying to describe dressage is always kind of a hard one. <laughs> dressage in essence, you know, means training. Way way back in history it was developed from military training so that the horses could be controlled through just the rider's seat uh, and leg aids so that the hands were free to wield swords, fight, do all the okay. other things. So, you know, that's the very basics of the training. It has obviously evolved into competitive display of this training. I liken it a little bit to like ice skating to where there's a compulsory pattern that you do. Okay. Um, you're judged from zero to 10 on each individual movement. We also have a freestyle, which is like the, the ice skating that they do to the music. Right. And there's a bunch of different levels of dressage. You know, the most basic level, it's just walk, trot, canter. There's only a few movements in a test, big circles, easy lines, all the way up through the Grand Prix, which requires a lot of refinement and skill and communication between the horse and rider to be able to perform. I think there's 32 different movements in the Grand Prix test. Oh, from okay. Piaffing, you know, trotting on the spot to a passage, which is a slow, highly elevated, kind of prancing looking gait. There's lateral movement, uh, lead changes down to every single stride, canter pirouettes. And so it's really a, a display of 
the refinement of the aids of the rider and the athletic ability of the horse. The ones that make it to Grand Prix have to have, you know, incredible athletes. They have a huge scope and range of motion and also a great ability to sit and collect and carry weight. So as well as they have to be very mentally compatible to learn all that stuff and want to perform for their riders at that level. Seems like there's a lot of almost like, you know, in a sense, like working pieces that are happening in that type of performance. Yes. And the goal being that you don't see really any of the riders' aids. You shouldn't see their hands moving a lot or the legs moving a lot. The goal is that it looks invisible as if the horse and rider are just performing as one. As one. That's so cool. So take us through a day in the life of Adrian Lyle. Does it differ depending on the time of year? Because right now you spend winters in Florida, right? Yes. We spend about half the year in Florida and half the year in Denver, Colorado. Florida is definitely the busiest time of year. This is our main competition season. So while we're in Florida, I work six days a week. You know, normally get up about 5, 5.30 in the morning. I get to the barn early. We do about anywhere between 10 and 12 horses a day. We have 25 horses at my barn, 15 of which are just in my program and care, and then I have some other students there as well. In the summers in Colorado, I attempt to take two days off. It so far hasn't gone very well, but that's my goal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, Colorado is, we don't compete while we're there, so it is actually a great break for the for the people, the staff, and especially the horses mentally, you know, they get to get out more, do some trail riding, go into the mountains a little bit and really focus on the training without having to worry about competitions for a few months. Okay. And then can you tell us about the process that it takes for preparing yourself, but then also preparing a horse for the Olympics? I'm I'm sure it can be something, especially for a horse, can be years, but what is that process like? I mean, absolutely. The starts years, years back to even select a young horse that you think has the talent to, to get there. Um, and if you're fortunate enough to get them to the Grand Prix level, the top level, the qualifications for the Olympics usually start about a year ahead of the Olympic Games. Um, you will compete and your scores are all tallied. And then usually at the end of the season, they'll take like the top 12 horse and rider combinations and those will be considered the short list. Usually we go to Europe then and compete. Then at the end of that, there's a selection committee that fix the teams. Last year, because of COVID, we ended up holding our own selection trials here in the U.S. where the top 12 horse and riders competed at. And so this is all just leading up before they name the team. And then once the team is named, then the preparations for travel and stuff are, are quite lengthy and a whole whole new thing in their own. So you've had the opportunity, really, to go to the Olympics is a once-in-a-lifetime experience. But you've not only done that once, you've done that twice, which is pretty incredible. So being able to attend both the 2012 London Olympics and then the 2020 Tokyo Olympics that happened last year in 2021 because of COVID, what things did you learn from your first Olympics to help you better prepare for the Tokyo Olympics? Yeah, I'm so incredibly lucky to have had this chance twice in a lifetime so far, and it is a opportunity and an experience like nothing else, that is for sure. The London Olympics were a wonderful Olympics to attend for your first one. Mainly logistically, it was fairly simple getting the horses there. It was, you know, the English-speaking country, not an extreme amount of travel. When I was competing at the London Olympics, I was not going to be a contender. Our team was not going to be a contender for the medals at the time. I was certainly not going to be a contender. So in a way, there was less pressure. It was just incredible to get to be there, to watch this and experience it and 
take notes of all these things that are involved in this, you still obviously want to do the best you can possibly do. But going into Tokyo, we knew our team was a medal contender. And so it was not just about enjoying the experience at that point. We really, really wanted to bring home a medal for our country. And so the expectations and the intensity were a little bit different. So I felt very fortunate that I'd been able to do London before and have that experience under my belt so that when it came to Tokyo and we really, really had to buckle down and get it done, I, I knew what was in store. Right. And it was probably a little bit easier to handle that pressure given that you knew a little bit about what to expect. Yes, definitely. That's awesome. What is the process like actually getting horses overseas to the Olympics? How long does it actually take travel-wise? Because I'm sure they have to stay in quarantine at certain points and things like that. But what preparations have to be made for the horses for travel? The travel element of it is huge because that's always the part that is probably the most scary as a rider, you know, to, to give your animals over to this to these flights and stuff where they're out of your control for a little bit of time. And of course, yeah. you put so much hard work and preparation into this point. And so you're just, you, you want to have everything perfect to make sure that the these flights and these long travels go well. I can kind of walk you through the process a little bit for Tokyo. So we started here in Florida with our final selection trials. Uh, once the team was named, we fly out of Miami. The Duda Corporation flies all of our U.S. team horses. We flew to Amsterdam. From Amsterdam, we went to Aachen, Germany. There was a 10-day pre-export quarantine there. So actually, all the horses that were going to go to Tokyo came into Aachen. We were on lockdown. So the horses were in quarantine, but we also had COVID to deal with. So we were also right. the athletes were all getting tested every day. The horses get tested for various diseases before they would be allowed to ship into Japan. And then we're all getting tested for COVID as well. But right. we were there, there for 10 days, and then it was a very long plane ride from there to Tokyo. They had to stop, I want to say, in Dubai and refuel. I think they were on the plane for about 17 hours, where we were able to send a professional groom. So my Salvino's groom was able to fly with our team horses, so she takes care of them you know, every yeah. step of the way, making sure they're fed and watered and medicated. But it's still a long trip for them, so we were a little bit nervous about that. Luckily... Everyone handled it beautifully. The companies were very professional and all the horses got there without a problem. That's awesome. And that's, yeah, that's, I can't even imagine, you know, having something like that that's just so important to you and knowing that you have to trust somebody else, especially like, you know, that isn't, it, it's nice that the groom got to go and be there because that probably helped kind of those Absolutely, feelings a yeah. little bit, <laughs> put you at ease a little bit. So that's so incredible though, just how much it takes to be able to get them over there and the time and everything. So you guys spent a lot of time traveling and prepping and just being able to get over there before even actually competing. So yeah, exactly. People don't realize that it's not just like another horse show where you go hop on your horse, the, the hoops you have to jump through just to get these animals there and make sure they're safe and properly cared for is a huge endeavor for sure. And then they have to compete at a very, yes. very elite <laughs> then level. they have to peak <laughs> at the right moment once they're there. Right, right. Jeez, that's incredible. And so for the first time in 73 years, you helped Team USA earn a silver medal at the Tokyo Games, which of course happened last year. What was that experience like for you and your teammates? It was really it was really incredible. It's almost surreal. It's one of those things where the farther away you get from it, I think the more it soaks in. You know, in the moment we we're all just a little bit still in disbelief 
my teammate Sabine was the last one to go yeah. out of the three of us. And so, of course, we have everyone in our federation is sitting there, you know, they're doing all the math. They know what score I got. They know what score uh, my teammate Stefan got. We know what score the British got, the, the Danish. So we know like exactly where Sabine's got to land in order to, we were actually hoping to get a bronze medal. We were projected that if we all perform to the best of our ability, we would end up with a team bronze, which would be incredible. And so we're watching every step of this test go and she's doing really well. And she's like, we're watching the score just creep up a little bit and creep up a little bit. We get like two thirds of the way done with a test and Stefan and I are sitting next to each other in the stands and we like turn to look, look at each other. We're like, we got it. We're going to get the bronze. If she can hold us, you know, through the last part of this test, we're going to get the medal. And so she was able to get that last part of the test was beautifully done. We both thought we got the bronze medal. We were so excited. We're running back to the barn to get on our horse for the award ceremony. And then it wasn't until I actually attacked up Salvino and my groom and we like ran back to the arena for the medal ceremony. And we come back out to the arena and they go, you guys got the silver. One of the horses that was expected to perform on the other team to a certain level just fell slightly shy. So we moved into the silver medal position and we were all just like, what? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> You've got to be a kidding me. A whole other shock and awe Yeah, a whole other shock. So it was really incredible. I mean, everyone was just screaming and crying and about about as happy as you can be because there's just so much work for years and years and years that go into that point. So it's pretty amazing when it comes to fruition. Well, you guys certainly made everybody here proud. So that was incredible. And then you also had to make the decision to withdraw yourself and Salvino from the Olympic Grand Prix freestyle for individual medals. What went into making that decision? And was that a difficult decision that you felt like you had to make there? Yes. I mean, of course, you go there to compete. You've trained to compete. I would have loved to do his freestyle. He has an incredible freestyle. Uh, we placed very well at the World Cup finals with that freestyle a few years before. But he just didn't feel 100% to me in the morning training. Mm-hmm. And he is the type of horse that would try no matter what. If I told yeah. him to go in there and perform, he would still go in there and perform. But because of that, I feel like I have even more of a duty to him to watch out for his welfare because he will never say no. So I have to be the one that steps up a little bit and says, my gut just says he's not right. He did what he came there to do. He helped bring home the team silver medal. And I don't think it would be right of us to push him. His owner, Betsy Giuliano, was 100% on board. Trainers were on board. They said, you know, absolutely the welfare of the horse comes first. Let's pull him out. Let's get him home, get him checked out. He's doing fine now. He's doing great. But I do think it was the right decision to make because the last thing I ever want to do is to put him in a situation, ask him to do something that he's not capable of doing in that moment. I feel like you earned a whole of the respect that you had in general before being able to make that decision at such a place in such a moment in time and being able to put his needs first. That was just so incredible. And I think you just like totally earned the respect of so many people by making that decision for Salvino. So, I mean, sometimes people forget about the importance of taking care of the horses and making sure that their health is okay. It's not about the money. It's not about the medals. When it really comes down to it, the horse is the most important thing. And you really showed that in that moment. So absolutely. There's a, I love that quote that I've seen circulating that says, love the horse first and the sport second. And I think that's so true. I mean, dressage, the sport is obviously my passion. I've devoted my life to it, but the horse still has to come first before any of our personal aspirations. Right. And without the horse, you wouldn't have that, right? So 
Yeah, that's that's incredible. And so you've had two horses that have been with you every step on the Olympic journeys. And you mentioned them when you were kind of talking about your heart horse and just like those relationships that you grew and developed with them. But Wizard in 2012 and Salvino most recently for the Tokyo Olympics. How did those partnerships actually come about? How did you kind of make that connection to get to start working with those horses? Yeah, so Wizard um, was originally bought for Debbie McDonald's long-term sponsor was Perry Thomas and was originally bought for his daughter because he was a very tall horse and she was tall. So when I went to become a working student for her when I was in college, they had just recently purchased him. He ended up being a little bit more horse than, than they had bargained for to be an amateur's horse. He had quite a, he was very hot-headed. He was very reactive. He had a, a lot of big range of emotions always. <laughs> yeah. So he, was, he was a lot to deal with. Debbie McDonald herself is just over five feet. I'm about six feet and she's just barely five feet. And so for yeah. her, the horse was going to be too big physically, but they could tell that this horse had talent. And so Perry Thomas really took a chance on me as I was just a working student at the time. And, and he said, well, why don't you ride it and, you know, see, see if you guys get along. And if you get along, I'll support you to show it a little bit. So I was able to start riding him that way. And I loved him right away. And Debbie McDonald coached us through every step of the process. And the more successful that Wizard became, the more Perry just said, I'll back you. You know, you want to go to Europe? Let's go do it. Let's see how far this horse can go. And he ended up taking us all the way to an Olympic Games. How incredible. Did you envision that at the time when you started working with him that, hey, like, go to the Olympics? No, definitely not. Like, at the time, I was just like, oh, this is so exciting. I get a chance to ride this horse and have a few lessons on him. Like, what a, what a great opportunity. And yeah. So, did, never in my wildest dreams thought that we would have ended up going to the Olympics together. So awesome. And then with Salvino, how did that come about? So after the retirement of Wizard, after the 2014 World Games, I was without a Grand Prix mount at that moment. I had a couple of young horses, including uh, Harmony's Duval, who I was bringing along, but they weren't to that Grand Prix level yet. So actually, the way Salvino came about is pretty amazing. I got a phone call one day from Akiko Yamasaki, who is Stefan Peters' longtime sponsor, and they said, We've been working with a group of owners. We would like to help back a, a U.S. rider in finding a horse, and we've chosen you. And I had no idea they were even in discussions about this. So I was, like, totally honored and shocked. And yeah. so they said, you know, we want to back you. to. We'll make a syndicate if you, if you find the horse. We'll back the purchase of it. And so it took over a year looking for a Salvino. I made five trips to Europe. Um, it, was a, it was a long process trying to find, you know, just the one that I clicked with. And then when I found him, I fell in love with him. He was originally purchased as part of the syndicate, so where there's multiple owners in it. And they owned him for the first couple of years we competed. The goal was always to have the syndicate bring, the, bring a horse of international quality to the U.S. to eventually move to single ownership. So it was kind of like bridging the gap. And so after I'd been competing him for a while, Betsy Giuliano took over the sole ownership of him. So, and tell us a little bit more about Salvino. So you said that he's the kind of horse that, you know, he's going to do whatever you ask of him, whether he's feeling it or not. But can you describe his personality a little bit more for us? Yes, he is like a utter gentleman. He's a stallion, which I wasn't super thrilled about when we were first looking at him. I would have preferred to not have a stallion. Yeah. Now that I've had him, of course, I wouldn't change it for the world. I think it gives him just that much more heart. 
but he's so sweet and so cuddly and highly intelligent and very people oriented. You know, even for a stallion, he doesn't he doesn't tune in necessarily to all the other horses around. He tunes in first to his human that's there. And he's just the most generous. Like I said, he would walk through fire if you asked him to. He's just yeah. the most generous, like incredibly giving horse that I've ever met. Oh, well, it sounds like you guys have a wonderful partnership together and he's very lucky to have you as well. So that's that's awesome. And then you mentioned Harmonies Duval. How about your relationship working with Harmonies Duval? He's also a horse that is very special to my heart. He was actually bred in Colorado by Harmony Sport Horses. So he was a U.S. bred horse, which is a little bit more rare for the dressage horses. Most of the time they come from Europe. We found him when he was four years old. Um, he still hadn't been started under saddle yet, so he was a little bit late to that. Kind of fell in love with him right away. They sent him up to get started and to get some training. And then when they went to, they were going to take him back, we approached him and said, you know, we really like him. Debbie McDonald's husband approached him and, and said, you know, Adrian loves him. She clicks with him. Would you consider selling him to us? And so they agreed. Um, since then, he's gone, gone through a, a various different owners who have all been super incredible to keep him with me. It's, it's kind of been a group project <laughs> to be able to keep oh, him wow. here. He is now owned by a syndicate of six wonderful people from the Northwest area. And so he's really special because I'm pretty much the only one who's ever done anything on him. You know, he was unbroke when we got him. And so we've developed, you know, I've done all the work with him up through the levels and and he's a he's a very special horse and is he's super intelligent but not confident like Salvino. So uh, Duval is much more flighty, much more of a nervous horse. Still looks to his person for for reassurance, but definitely a different personality type. That's that's so interesting how they can have such differing personalities and just those unique characteristics that really make them who they are. You have obviously had so many opportunities to compete at very kind of prestigious competitions. What do you feel like has been your most memorable competition and why? I mean, obviously the Olympics would have to be at the top of that list for obvious reasons, but some other ones that might not be so obvious. The World Cup finals to me was really fun. It was something I'd always wanted to do. And our World Cup finals is based purely off the score from your musical freestyle, um, unlike the World Games or the Olympics. And I personally love doing the musical freestyles, so that was really a fun environment. It's an indoor show, so it was in Sweden, and and everything's like right on top of you. The crowd is you know wild, and everyone's cheering, and it was it's just a very it was a very rowdy, fun, involved. You know, you felt like the fans were really involved with you in that show, and I remember that just being that was a really special experience. I bet that was just so energizing. Yep. And so, I mean, you have a ton of experience working with horses. What do you feel like has been your most challenging experience that you've had since you started working with and training horses? I think the most, I mean, the biggest challenge that I've kind of figured out with all of them is that you have to approach every one of them a little bit differently. You know, you can have one horse and train it all the way up and think, great, I got it. You know, I know what I'm doing. And I got it figured you get out. The next one. Exactly. <laughs> and don't ever think you have it figured out in horses because the second you have that, you think that they're going to teach you otherwise. Yeah. It is for sure the most humbling sport out there. But I think just being willing to, to not think that you know it all and being willing to reevaluate the way you're approaching something, the more experience I've had, the more readily I've 
I am willing to do that, you know, when I was a little bit younger, I think, well, gosh, why, you know, I know I'm doing it right. Why isn't this working? And that can be a little bit challenging for you. But the more you've kind of gone about it, and I'm sure it's no different than people. Not everyone learns in the same learning style. Yeah. And more and more we're figuring that out. And I think it's the same for horses. And we have to be willing to be a little bit creative until we can find the language that they understand what we're asking them. And it's not the same for every horse. And we have to kind of be humble enough to realize that we might not be explaining it right. Right, right. And I think the older that you get, I think it's easier to, I mean, I say that for the most part. I I can definitely relate to what you're saying just in the general sense of the older that you get, the more you realize that like sometimes you're going to be wrong with things and it's okay. Sometimes people have a hard time with that, I think, but that just comes down to personality. But I think maturity also shows when you're able to recognize those moments. So what do you feel like has been your proudest moment that you've had thus far? That is for sure when it being able to help the team bring home the silver medal. That was such an incredible experience. And it's great to win a competition when you're competing for yourself, for sure. But to have the backing of like a whole country behind you at the Olympics Games is really a whole different feeling. You know, you you feel the weight of it on your shoulders because you want to make it you want to make it happen so bad for your country. And so to just hear how proud everyone was of that is really incredible. Like even on the way home from the Olympics, you know, I was wearing like a, a sweatshirt or something, you know, with the, with the Olympic logo, you know, and how many strangers just stop and thank you for what you've done and, and realizing what a big impact it has on people was pretty moving. Oh, that's so incredible. I, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you, what is your favorite equine based movie? okay this is an obscure one and i'm sure no one's heard of it it's there was an old disney movie called horse masters and we had an old vhs tape of it in black and white and i watched it about 100 times over it was a a disney musical memorized every line of it so if all you guys out there have never seen it you need to go google it and figure out how to watch it because i don't even know where you can buy it anymore (laughs) you'd have to find it on ebay on vhs probably (laughs) but it's it's fantastic i highly recommend it (laughs) and it's called horse masters yes Oh, okay. I'm going to have to look that up. For Had some Annette reason, Puticelli, like some of all those old stars in it. It's great. <laughs> it sounds familiar. And I'm just wondering now if I was to like look at it, if I would, if I would recognize what it was. Okay. That's awesome. You have reached so many goals, I think, and beyond what most any person could hope to accomplish in their life. And you're only in your mid thirties. So that's pretty incredible. But what is a bucket list item that you have yet to do in your life that you would like to do someday? So on the horse related side someday, and definitely not now, because while I'm still traveling internationally and competing, the setup I have for where I work out of is great. Someday when I'm ready to settle down a little bit, I would love to have my own farm. I've just always wanted to be able to have my own place with my horses there where I can look out my back door and enjoy them. Yeah. On the non-horse side of life, I love traveling and exploring and camping and hiking. And so there's a whole bunch of places that I want to make sure I get to. (laughs) So again, once life slows down, I would like to be able to explore a little bit more of the non-horsey side of things and make sure I get to see everything I want to see while I'm here. That's awesome. And you had mentioned when we kind of were prepping for this before, just how active and outdoorsy your family is your grandparents traveled in their sailboat uh, around the world yes 
<laughs> that's like, that's crazy. And then your mom, she was on the USA Women's Downhill Ski Team, right? Yes, my family are big skiers. Oh, that is so cool. And then, of course, your cousin Maya, who, you know, also is kind of an elite competitor and she does more of the event riding and everything. But so that just kind of like goes kind of hand in hand, I guess, with what your someday goals are being able to accomplish once you once you aren't always riding and training and doing that nonstop and everything. It just fits right in with your family's lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. Our family, no one holds still well. That's what I always say. Like, everyone has to be moving at all but times. That's, so. that's good, though, right? I mean, you're really Absolutely. like... I feel like that's just like truly like living life by doing that. And so that's so that's so cool that um, you come from a family that loves to do so many things like that and just be so adventurous. Who in your life has been your greatest inspiration? And can you tell us a little bit about them? That would be Debbie McDonald for sure. She's been such a huge influence in my life. I mentioned her a little bit earlier. So she was always a role model of mine when I was growing up riding. I'd watched her, you know, I'd watch videos of her teaching and competing whenever I could. When I was in college, I was able to get her email address from a family friend who was a mutual friend. And I kind of started harassing her with emails and being like, hi, you don't know me, but I'd love to have a lesson someday. And she's very gracious. And so she said, okay, if you haul your horse down here from college, you know, I'll give you a few lessons in the summer. So that's kind of how that all started. At the end of the summer, when I went to go back to college, they offered me a working student position. So I accepted and I worked as a groom in exchange for board and training on my horse that I had at that moment. From there, it grew into more of a riding job as Debbie just started deciding she was getting ready to retire from international competition. So she has been a huge, huge mentor. She always trains with compassion and with a horse first driven philosophy. And I think that's really important to prove that you can be successful and still be compassionate and kind in getting there. And so I've been with, that was gosh, 14 years ago now. So I've been with her like a good chunk of my life. She's, you know, a bit like a mom as well as a trainer. She's not only a fabulous trainer, but she really looked out for my career, you know, and like guided me through the proper steps to, because I would have been perfectly happy to just stay, you know, catch riding horses for them. I was like so thrilled to do anything, but she really was able to open up avenues to allow myself to advance. And I'm incredibly thankful to her for that. And that's great to be able to have a mentor like that, that sees something in you to be able to support you like that. So that's, that's awesome. What do you feel is the most important thing that horses have taught you in your life so far? I think the most important thing the horses have taught me so far is to enjoy the journey because there's so much work that goes into this sport and so many things that go wrong, even on a good day. That's more the, the usual than the exception. That if you only enjoy the reward, you know, if you only enjoy the few moments where you win a medal or you win a ribbon, and that's yeah. the that's what you're doing it for, you're going to burn out because those are few and far between. So I yeah. think it's, it's really taught me to enjoy the everyday process of it. And it's the training that I really enjoy anyways, watching these horses learn things and day to day, you know, change and develop. And that's that's the most rewarding part of it. And when you're able to win medals and ribbons on top of that, that's wonderful because that kind of proves that you've done the correct training. But they've really taught me to enjoy the process and to not be disappointed when things go wrong. It just makes you enjoy the moments that they go right even more. Right. I will. And like for any, I feel like any successful person knows that they don't get there 
by not failing, right? I mean, Adrian, have you have you ever failed in your life? Oh my gosh, all the time. <laughs> right. And so Absolutely. I don't know that I think sometimes people are hopeful that maybe they'll just be able to, you know, avoid all of that heartache, the trouble and all of that. But to be able to reach that point, I feel like you have to be willing to be okay with failing. Not that you work to fail, but that you're okay with failing because you learn those absolutely you have to be able to embrace you know to embrace the fact that it's gonna stuff's gonna go wrong a lot of the times and it doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong or the path you're on is wrong it just that's life (laughs) so you can't be upset about it (laughs) gotta keep moving forward and then you mentioned in a blog write-up that you did once that you and your cousin Maya who you know we talked about you grew up riding horses together and you know, she's also an elite competitor, but you guys were just two kids who didn't come from horse families. You didn't have fancy horses and expensive barns and yet found a way to become some of the best of the best within your disciplines. What would you say to those who are listening to our podcast today who have a similar horse opportunity that you had growing up, but they also have big dreams like you did. What advice would you give them? That is a great question because like I mentioned earlier, there can be such a huge disconnect when you watch, you know, these these huge internationally successful competitors and stuff and you can dream, but it's it's kind of hard to imagine that you might actually get there someday. And I guess the advice, you know, I would give them is that there is a way and that and that hard work pays off. And I spent a lot of my childhood getting any kind of experience I could. You know, I'd go to the pony club lessons if I didn't own a horse at the time. And I'd sit and I'd watch and I'd watch everyone's lesson. I'd learn from it. And if a horse happened to be naughty and the rider didn't want to ride it, I'd volunteer to ride it so that I could get a free lesson. You know, you do all these things that just start putting knowledge in your pocket. So by the time that I did move to Debbie McDonald and was given a chance to ride there, I knew in my heart I'd done everything I possibly could up to that point to gather all the knowledge and yeah, all the knowledge that I could so that when the opportunity came, I was able to make something of it. My cousin Maya is an extremely hardworking and very humble person. And it just, like you said, it just shows you that there, if there's a will, there's a way. And you definitely do not have to have the fanciest horses when you're young. You definitely do not have to be going to the big show circuits. It's really about gaining knowledge more than anything. Yes. And I... I mean, it's really kind of like a Cinderella story just because, you know, you kind of expect the people. I mean, this can happen in horse riding events. It can happen in other, you know, sporting events. Like it could happen in anything like, you know, you think that the people with the most money are the ones. Yeah, you know, they're probably set up and have an advantage to be able to be Mm -hmm. successful just because of, you know, the things that are kind of given to them. But boy, that's got to be so sweet to you know, know that you basically built what you have and you've become who you have from where you started. Very rewarding. For sure. On your own two <laughs> feet, right? Like, I think that's pretty incredible. I think in a way it almost makes you fight for it harder because yeah. at least my personality, you know, if, if the world says it's not going to happen, I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm going to prove, prove you, you wrong. wrong. <laughs> but it just makes it, you know, every, every little thing you're able to accomplish that much more rewarding for sure. And that's not just horses. I'm sure that's in any walk of life. Yeah. But you know, Adrian, this is like researching and prepping for this interview. I think I will kind of wanted to wrap up our episode today with that thought, because I think that really is what 
kind of totally drew me into where you came from and who you've become and the things that you've accomplished just knowing that you've worked so hard to get to where you are and not everybody's willing to 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 do that so the people that that really care and they really really want to be in that place you're going to be working the hardest i think and of course it it helps being able to make good connections and you know, you kind of threw in there too with your inspiration with Debbie McDonald, but networking is such a huge thing as well. Getting yourself and getting to know the right people can can really help out too. So yeah, aligning yourself with, you know, the people you, you admire and the people you want to emulate, I think is really important. You know, and in my case, it was as simple as tracking down an email address, you know, and then just <laughs> hounding her until she agreed. <laughs> so, you know, no, they're not going to come to you. That's for sure. No one's going to you know, if you sit at home on your butt, no one's going to search you out and say, hey, you, why don't you come do this? You know, you really got to go knocking on some doors and be willing to be a little creative and finding avenues to make those connections. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Adrian, how can our listeners stay connected with you after this episode and keep following you on your journey? They can find me on, I have a Facebook athlete page at Adrian Lyle or on Instagram. I'm usually pretty active on that. I will answer questions, post updates. Um, I'm always happy to hear from people out there. So that's the best way to kind of follow the journey. Awesome. So for our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. We appreciate you following us on the Beyond the Barn podcast. If you have any topic ideas that you would like to hear more about on the podcast, please feel free to email us at podcast at stanleyforage.com. And other than that, Adrian, thank you again so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Beyond the Barn podcast by Stanley Forage. We'd love for you to share our podcast with your favorite people and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite listening platform. Until next time, keep your cinch tight and don't forget to turn off the water.